Welcome all you weirdos, Krakoans, and not technically Morlocks. It's time for us to administer a techno-organic flashback treatment of your weird dose of X. I'm Jason, and communicating with me via an unbreakable psychic link, and also the Zencast web application, is our pal Ruben. Ruben, how the heck are you today? I'm doing great. Yeah. I'll, I'll talk out loud so that the rest of the people can hear what I'm saying. Uh, but of course, that, that is very real. polite of you. It's not necessary. Secondary conversation polite. through our, our psychic connection here. We are that close, yes. Uh, as, as we discussed last week, this is going to be a kind of a special episode. What we're doing is we're flashing back and to 1996. We're going to revisit a miniseries written by Peter Milligan and penciled by the great John Paul Leon of the further adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, numbers one through and one through four. Now, I, I spoiler alert, I I love this series, Ruben. I think you're probably more or less on the same page as me. Yes, yeah, I actually thought this is one to go out and read. Um, so if you haven't ever read this, which I had never done, go and read it. It's great. The art's great. The story's great. And I guess we'll get into it. Yep, we will. And this is an origin story for Mister Sinister. I mean, he's not in the title, but that is really his book. And of course, it's it's not his first appearance. He was actually created by Chris Claremont, you know, a decade earlier in 1987 for the Mutant Massacre storyline. But it wasn't until 1996 that, via the magic of you know comic book time travel, we get this origin story. Also, we should address why is this called the Further Adventures of Cyclops and Well, it's the sequel to another miniseries called, you know, obviously, The Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix. That book was written by Scott Lobdell and features Scott and Gene pulled forward in time. And that's when we learn how they help to raise their son, Nathan, a.k.a. Cable, and all that Cable and Strife stuff happen. That's that's a whole other kettle of fish we might revisit on another slow week. But this slow week, we're going to stick to the sequel, The Further Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, in which Scott and Jean are sent backwards in time to try to avert apocalypse, taking over first Victorian England and then the world. Nothing's ever straightforward in uh, Scott Summers' X-Men land, is it? Well, but everyone says his life is boring, and that he's just a generic character. Oh, I, I love how insane his life is. It, it, it's yeah, probably one of my favorite characters of all time. It, it, it adds not. some wrinkles here that probably don't get brought up so much again, but it adds some extra little texture to the life of Scott Summers, and, and I love it. But before we get into that, I, I want us to start off just by gushing about the art. It it looks so good. I knew the name John Paul Leon before, but I didn't really have a good connection to who he was and what he had done. Uh, but but this is great. It's it's on the stylized end of the spectrum, kind of dark and angular, large regions of just pure black, almost a stained glass effect. It reminds me in a little bit of Mike Mignola, or maybe yeah, a little that's where bit, it's going to go. Certainly an inspiration for him. It has to be. There's um, some clear ties there. Yeah, yeah, a little more detailed, I'd say. But he does have a lot of the stylized look. Um, the color palette is is very similar as well. But these pages are rich. It's it's interesting. It's like. Individual characters are kind of minimal details, but the amount of background detail that's packed into every page is, is pretty phenomenal. Yeah, the, the characters, especially characters like Apocalypse and Sinister, are drawn with these kind of geometric, you know, very squared off angular looks, which are not at all, you might call realistic, but, but gets the emotional and, and uh, just that crazy out of this world feeling across so well. So, yeah, even if – I guess there's a couple action sequences where I kind of start to lose what's really going on here, but that's once in a while. That's a problem. But this just looks fantastic. So even if you don't necessarily want to read the story, it's more than worthwhile if you have Marvel Unlimited just to call this up, flip through it, and, and take in the, the art. And if you happen to have the DC Universe app as well, 
I suggest you check out another book called Batman Creature of the Night. Have Have you read that one? Yep. Yeah. That's the. Um, oh my gosh, what's his name? It's Kurt uh, Busiek. Kurt Busiek. Yeah. Yeah, that was great. I love that story. Um, yeah, that was same, the first book artist. I'd I'd read with John Paul Leon, and, and didn't again didn't know his name. That was when I was getting back into comics, and that book was delayed a lot because of unfortunately John Paul Leon's health problems. I think it was Jim's book of the year, like two or maybe three years in a row, and it only has four issues because it, the delays were were pretty crazy, but very understandable because you know Leon had has some some tough things going on. But that also looks fantastic. A great story. I mean, can't go wrong with Kurt Busiek. And then, then put give him a great artist too. Embarrassing that I don't remember his name, but I, I love him as a writer and everything. I, I don't think I've ever read anything of his where I was like, "This is bad." It's base level adequate, and then a lot of his stuff hits like very high limits. Yeah, he's he's certainly on my uh, you know comic book writer Mount Rushmore for sure. Okay, I think that's enough gushing in background. Ready to get into issue number one itself? Okay, this is the Further Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix number one of four, titled Digging Up the Past. Now, despite the title, this issue has very, very little Cyclops or Phoenix in it, and I'm fine with that. They show up on pages 20 and 21, appearing out of nowhere. And In Gene's case, she just shows up in Westminster Abbey, and in Scott's case, in some nearby sewers. They're both naked. You know, I guess that's a time travel thing like Terminator. They're both confused, sure. And they're both trying to understand where they are. And that's all we get out of them. And that's fine. We're not really here for them anyway. We're here for Mr. Sinister. So you good with that too? Yeah, that's about all they do in this issue. <laughs> I do think Scott gets the uh, short end of the stick on that though. <laughs> I mean, it's. I mean, Gene does show up naked in front of some priests there in, in Westminster Abbey. So that's that's kind of a moment as well. Would be played a little bit differently in a manga, but uh, this I don't is think a very I want serious tone sewer water um, in my nether regions. <laughs> it is also kind of funny that he shows up with no uh, booby quartz face shield, no nothing. He can't even open his eyes and look around. He's just he's 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 naked, he's blind, and he's standing in someone else's poop and pee. It's a bad situation. <laughs> okay, but elsewhere, as the story opens in 1859, we have a still quite human Nathaniel Essex married to his wife, Rebecca, and she's expecting their second child. Their first child, Adam, died a couple years earlier at age four, and this seems to have really just, you know, destroyed their world. Understandably, right? It's, who can imagine? Yeah. Yeah, what's interesting here is, especially in the context of who Sinister is these days, he's very human, relatable. You see his humanity on display, and you feel bad for him, which... Man, I would not expect myself feeling bad for Nathan. <laughs> you do. You you see him suffering. You see that he's driven by his work. He's thrown himself into his work. But you you see why? Because he's still very much a, a suffering human being. And you kind of yeah, you kind of see why he. It, you know, it gives us a great explanation for like why is he a geneticist? Where did that come from? Um, and you see him wrestling with you know science constrained by ethics versus science. You know, pure, what he says is pure science, right? Which is kind of what he does now. It's just whatever he wants. So we see him uh, first starting off quite reasonably. He goes to the Royal Society to make a speech. They're about to kick him out because he's you know gotten a bit off the rails. But he's going there hoping that he can convince them. No, no, no. You should you should let me keep doing my thing. This is good. So first he starts to argue that the ideas of Charles Darwin, who was a character in the story, which is kind of fun. He says Darwin's ideas are only partially correct. Darwin says that evolution happens slowly, incrementally over millions of years. And Essex says, sure, but that evolution can also make great leaps very, very quickly, which 
kind of isn't too far off from a real-world scientific idea called punctuated evolution, which is associated with real-world scientist Stephen Jay Gould started talking about this in the real-world 1970s, but this is a comic book, so Essex takes the ideas a bit further, saying that some humans contain bits of hereditary information he wants to call, of course, Essex factors. Why not? And he predicts that within a hundred years, these bits of information will mutate and cause an evolutionary break. So what's he doing here? He's predicting the mutants are going to show up, which is easy to do because, you know, it's a flashback story. And then he goes one step a little further and shows the Royal Society what he thinks his breakthrough will look like. And yeah. to do that- oh, By the way, I've been making a Frankenstein monster. I think everybody before this was like, okay, this is interesting. Good this science. is worse than Frankenstein. He's taken bits of corpses and then some animals as well. Animals and humans together kind of put some wings and I think some claws and maybe a beak and a tail. I don't know. But just just you know, sewed them all together and said, hey, look at this. This is where humanity is going. And the Royal Society drives him out of the room by throwing like books at him. He just even Charles Darwin thinks that Essex has gone kind of kooky. I mean, he could have just drawn a picture. <laughs> he could have just got out his paper, but like, here's a man, let's draw some wings. But for whatever reason, he's like, I gotta stitch it all together. Not our man Essex. He doesn't do things by halves. Why? Do, why draw a picture when you can just you know dig up some dead bodies and animals and sew them together? Ugh. So Essex, you know, driven out of the room, goes to get a drink because you know who wouldn't? It's the Victorian era. I think they were drinking all the time, and he meets. A guy with a great name, named Cootie Tremble, which I, mean, I think I, I saw a stripper with that name once, but that's a different podcast. But this Cootie Tremble is the leader of a group of ne'er-do-wells called, and what's the name of his group again, Ruben? I think I forget. Oh, yeah, the Marauders. The I love one? that, because it was like, I always wondered, like, why did he come up with the idea of Marauders? The weird, weird idea for a team, right? Name, and it's very, like, that's very central to, like, the X-Men lore at this point. Like, a very formidable team right and now they're sort of a you know the name's been co-opted by kitty pride as like a heroic team but anyways like it's interesting the idea here was that oh he even kind of borrowed the name it was just you know the name of some ruffians (laughs) from the victorian era yeah i i do love that peter milligan kind of plays us off very casually i think in a modern book they'd be tempted to really lean into it and like do you get it do you get it well he just he just uses the name and moves on and lets the reader make the connection so yeah the name would have been in like very punctuated like stylized text right bold type with maybe an editor's note saying huh, huh? maybe even a page turn right like dot 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 we are the marauders <laughs> mm-hmm. so cootie takes essex down into the sewers and shows them a group of quote freaks and fools and all types of misshapen folk now no one ever calls these people morlocks right mostly because hg wells didn't write that book where the where the term comes from for like another forty years or so in, in this timeline. But clearly these are these these are the Morlocks, right? They don't have superpowers, but they have all all the downsides of the Morlocks. And again, very lightly done, never use the word Morlock. They don't lean into it, but it's it's clear what, what Milligan is doing. Very very well done. I do like that they met in the pub before they went into the sewer because otherwise I, I would have been like, why is he following a strange man to the sea, the sewer circus. Like, that doesn't seem like <laughs> something he would do. Like, hey, you know, if somebody's on the streets, like, hey, Ruben, do you want to come into the sewer to go look at some stuff? I'd be like, get the F out of here. <laughs> like, no, thank you. But I could, I could buy it. He's, he's a little buzzed, right? He's, he's little, angry. A little buzzed. Buzz. Yeah. He, yeah. He's, you know, 
out. He thinks that maybe this guy can show him one of the links so he can prove to this royal society that he's not crazy. He's he's on the right track. So yeah, why not give it a shot? And also one of these not quite Morlocks is a very normal looking boy named Daniel. And his only thing is he just doesn't speak. Somehow that makes you enough of a freak to be down here in the sewers. And he's going to be important later. So we have one more major character to place on the scene. And we are shown that at this same time in another part of London, an underground sewer is un- is being constructed, which is, again, another historical fact. At this year, the London sewer system was indeed being built. Now, in the Marvel Universe, however, this construction disturbs the long slumber of one En Sabaner, better known to you and me as Apocalypse and to the mutants of Krakoa as Hey, He's been slumbering, as he periodically does, but the sewer workers wake him up and naturally he, he kills them, which is only fair. I, I wake up pretty cranky myself. And then he meets up with the marauders, Apocalypse does, kills a few of them too, but Kuda decides to play ball and say, hey, you're my master now. We'll see later on how this works out for him. So, so Ruben, how do you think this fits in with your idea of Apocalypse's continuity and backstory. Yeah, so this, I struggle with this a little bit now. Obviously, this was perfectly fine when it was currently written, but the idea of Apocalypse, you know, existing long before this, which which he does in this series, but he seems to sort of question, you know, who am I? And he seems to take value when he eventually meets up with um, Nathan Essex and learning the like, oh, he's a mutant. Like, he doesn't seem to actually know that. It, it doesn't really work with the current continuity, right? Where it's like he was part of some pre- you know, early mutant society with the Iraqi, right? Like, his no his history still works, right? We, we still, we get his backstory, his Egyptian backstory, right? Which is still where Apocalypse comes from. We don't see anything about when he went off and had his whole Krakoa, Okara, Arako interlude. But we could say here that he just doesn't mention it, or maybe he's just woken up and he's still kind of confused. Maybe he doesn't have all his memories. Not that, not not that I expect this to actually be in line with some future story, right? So it's not obviously not his fault that he didn't take those factors in. But I, I like the idea that like maybe he, you know, when he awakens from these slumbers, it takes him a little while to get his bearings and yeah. maybe his it's memory's close not enough that we can we can no prize it, we can make it work. It's I don't think it's it didn't it didn't bother my enjoyment. I want to say that I do really like the apocalypse uniform that is on display here very different oh, yeah. it's very like i guess sort of steampunkish um mixed with like, like egyptian a, mythos a it's steampunk just very... sarcophagus yeah it's very cool and right? different he, he looks like an upright sarcophagus he has that egyptian pointy outy beard thing that you see on like king tut and he can transform himself back and forth between a a more or less human looking form and this very very alien mutated apocalypse looking form. So depending what impression he wants to make, he goes back and forth. The art does a great job of conveying it. So we end this issue with N. Sabaner now looking more or less human in, in this guise after he's you know killed some people and, and made some, uh, some acolytes. He makes his way to Millbury House and introduces himself to Nathaniel Essex, says, you know, I've heard a few things about your work from those marauders. And N. Sabaner thinks, hey, maybe we should be allies. So that's the end of issue one. And I'm completely on board by the end of this this issue. I think it looks fantastic. I like the characters. The the dialogue takes a little bit of getting used to. It's kind of overwrought, it's kind of old-fashioned, and if that bothers you, it might it might bother some people more than it did me. But for me, for this story, for this setting, it took me like two pages and then I'm like, "Okay, I get it. It's what it's doing." What did you think of that dialogue? I th- I thought it was totally fine. There are some of the old comic tropes above me like the narrator boxes that sort of say exactly what you see in the 
in the scene, right? You don't necessarily need to see that. Like, you look at the last page, you see uh, Nathan Essex, like, running up to see his wife, and it says Nathan Essex has seen her. It's like, okay. <laughs> I didn't read that. I could see that on the page. But um, it's just, I mean, it's, it's a style, right? From, like, the, I think they kind of started to go away from this maybe in, like, the 2000s. And certainly in the 80s, this was, like, the way comics were written. Very much. I'll, I'll certainly take this all day, every day over like the snarky, sarcastic way of writing. Over, overly earnest, I can deal with much, much better than that. So no problem. Moving onward into issue number two, the further adventure of Cyclops and Phoenix number two, Unnatural Selection. So in this issue, the Nathaniel Essex story doesn't move forward all that much. We get a lot more of Scott and Jean. But Nathaniel and Rebecca, we see their marriage kind of growing even further apart. She wants him to abandon his research, but Nathan Nathaniel says no, no, and his new buddy and Sabineur is encouraging him in that direction. Uh, Apocalypse wants to go along with Nathaniel when he goes to meet a group of rich dudes who might support his research. And and, and what's the name of this group again, Ruben? I, it seems to have slipped my mind. The uh, the rich weirdos who he thinks will support his uh, his crazy oh, the Hellfire research. Club. Sorry, yes, yeah, this Hellfire. is the Hellfire yeah. Club. Yes, yeah, an early early version of the Hellfire Club. Early version, and we even see someone kind of in the background of the Hellfire Club who I'm pretty sure is supposed to be an ancestor of Sebastian Shaw. It's he, he has the same look, the mutton chops. I don't think it's ever quite confirmed, but obviously that's what we're supposed to take out of out of this. So moving on to Scott and Jean, they have most of their own separate adventures here, although they, they stay in psychic contact with each other, just, just as Ruben and I are doing. Uh, Jean has this psychic conversation with a far future woman called Sanctity, who is the last of the Ascani sisterhood, who delivers some, some much needed exposition. So Sanctity says that she's the one who sent Jean and Scott to this time period, and that she's done so because someone must prevent the rise of apocalypse. And there's no one no native of this time period could possibly stand up to him, so hey, it's up to you two. She give, gives Jean a few cryptic clues about a place called Millbury House and kind of sends her off to have an adventure. Now, do you know who this sanctity woman is? I don't. I don't know too much about the Scani, but I think they're very connected with um, Cable and his Absolutely. story. Absolutely. So sanctity lives in the far, like, 3,000-year future, but she's actually, if you, you know, dig into her backstory, she is Tanya Trask. Now, I'm sure you recognize the name Trask. She is the daughter of the man who invented the Sentinels. But her story and how she got sent to that far future, that's that's a whole other podcast. So, you know, let us know if you want us to talk about that one. But she's kind of interesting. So before we totally move on, I wanted to quickly go back to the Hellfire group. Um, I didn't remember something in here. There's a reference to a Lord Braddock also. And there there is a, they, they say, Mr. Shaw and Braddock, if you remember, is Captain Britain. So I thought that was interesting that, that, um, the Braddocks have ties to Hellfire. I didn't know that. Interesting. Yeah, again, Milligan drops in these little connections that you can pick up on and makes it a, a richer story, which is fantastic. I love it. So Gene goes off to Millbury House just in time to kind of meet up with Rebecca, see her re-burying her dead son, Adam. Oh, because, by the way, uh, Nathaniel Essex dug up his own dead son for his scientific work, which, ooh, gross. So she talks with Rebecca, has a psychic chat with the mute boy, Daniel. And from Daniel's mind, she learns that Essex and Apocalypse are working together, uh-oh, and that they've gone to a place called the Hellfire. She also cures Daniel, whatever was preventing him from being able to speak, which is nice. And uh, Jean thinks that maybe the way to stop Apocalypse's plan from succeeding is to prevent Daniel Essex from ever becoming Mr. Sinister. Maybe maybe that's the goal. Maybe that's what they need to do. So meanwhile, Scott still can't open his damn eyes because he doesn't have any glasses with him. He can't even look around and see where he's going. 
he ends up having an kind of unintentional run-in with the group of not Morlocks under the city. Eventually, teams up with them to stand up the Marauders, make some friends. He also makes contact with one Oscar Stamp, who is a Marauder, but one that the not Morlocks say he ain't as bad as the others. Okay, I guess you know, damning with faint praise, but all right. But Oscar and and Scott are kind of kind of buddies now, and he's going to help the, the the blind Scott find his way to the Hellfire Club. So our issue wraps up at, of course, we're all converging on the Hellfire Club. Apocalypse reveals his full, most powerful mutant self. There, we see the transformation in a gross way, and he informs them that, hey, you guys, you guys all work for me now. You're, you know, I'm your boss. I'm either going to kill you or you work for me. Those are your two choices. Meeting over really can't say no to apocalypse no you can't and interestingly his whole agenda is just basically destabilize the world cause you know global conflict and that way the strong survive and the weaker we don't get horsemen exactly named here the way apocalypse would in other appearances but we see that he wants the hellfire club basically to be war right he wants them to cause war around the world which will get you know the whole evolution thing going even faster he thinks yeah and he talks about um Nathan Essex basically creating some kind of biological malady that'll, I guess, kill more weak people. Yep. So Essex, well, he's not named pestilence, but you know, that they use the word pestilence. They want him to create some sort of you know virus or bacteria which will just kill a bunch of people and again let the most fit rise to the top. So that's Apocalypse's big plan. So outside the club, Apocalypse and Essex are spotted by Gene and Scott now reunited. And a fight ensues between our X-Men and a group of marauders who have been horrifically augmented by Apocalypse's technology. Now, Apocalypse is actually kind of impressed here by Gene and Scott, because they seem to be above more powerful than the general run of these, you know, you know, weak little humans. But eventually he says, yeah, you're pretty good, but you're still basically unfit. So at the end of the fight, both our heroes are defeated and left in the clutches of Nathaniel Essex. But Essex has something more important to ponder, even than these new test subjects. He's been made an offer by Apocalypse. So how would you characterize this this offer he has? Yeah, so he's driven by um, trying to figure out, I guess, why his son died and why his life kind of fell apart. And it seems like um, Apocalypse is basically like you're constrained by your you know remaining shreds of humanity and your ethics and your willing you know unwillingness to go like as far as it has to go to get your solutions that you want and, you know, come join me and I'll basically take away your morality. And the question is like, does he want to give up, you know, his humanity to kind of further his agenda or, you know, is this guy evil who I should stop? Yeah, that's, that's the deal. You give up your humanity and you become my, my servant, apocalypse, servant forever. And I will give you long life. It doesn't quite say immortality, but take away the the fragility of the human body and also the ability to just pursue these studies, you know, for a longer period of time with with much more power. So will Essex take Apocalypse up on the offer? I I, I think we kind of know the answer to that one, but that is where issue two ends. Yeah. And they have they have this great, you know, push and pull, right? He although he is upset about the death of his son and you know, the challenger's family, he still loves his wife, right? And so that's sort of what holds him back is this, you know, uncertainty about like, if I give this up, you know, my marriage is over. I don't have love in my life anymore. Very true. That's his one remaining, like very, very tenuous link to humanity, right? It's, it's, that's, that's all he's got. So it's interesting to me. You know, another child on the way. It's like he has an opportunity to, to, you know, almost have the life he lost, but in a better way. 
And it's interesting to me that Apocalypse and every other point in the story, he just tells people, here's what you're going to do. You work for me. It's curious that he, with Essex, he gives him a choice. He leaves it up to him. I don't know if he just wants Essex to have to make that choice. He'll be more devoted if he does it himself. We could make up a lot of reasons why, but I think it just makes for a more interesting story. So onward, further adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, number three, the origin of a species. Not not the species, a species. So we start here with Jean being pulled from the Thames by Nathaniel Essex. She's been thrown there in the fight, and they have this, this conversation. She tries to reason with him to convince him to kind of break it off with Apocalypse. She still thinks that, hey, this is what we got to do. We got to prevent Essex from becoming sinister and bing, bang, boom, our work is done. But he continues to believe that his human life is over and, and maybe his only future, maybe his only purpose is to just devote himself to his scientific work. And, and that means going with Apocalypse. So Gene breaks off this conversation to go and rescue Oscar Stamp, remember that marauder with a heart of gold, when he's attacked by his old boss, Cootie Tremble. And now Tremble's been also horribly augmented and mutated by Apocalypse. He's just monstrosity. Now, Essex is surprised and almost maybe not quite moved by seeing this superior evolved being, Jean, risk herself to save a lowly human thief like Oscar. And this is where it gets a little heavy-handed where he says, oh, in the future, will there be this, this group of powerful people who protect the innocent? Oh, that's crazy. Who could predict such a thing? But that was maybe a little heavy-handed, but, you know, hey, X-Men, you know those. Yeah. Well, I think his view was evolution would basically create these superpowered beings and that naturally the superior beings would just dominate society. And so I think he's like, what, wait, if these are, you know, the part of those, you know, early versions of those, you know, next generation creatures, but they're actually still trying to protect the weaker, that doesn't actually square with the theory of survival of the fittest. Yeah, his simple idea of, of survival of the fittest does not include compassion. He doesn't have that human feeling as part of it. So this seems like a, a variable he hasn't accounted for, and it, it makes him curious at least. So Essex goes off while Jean's doing her thing with Oscar. He goes back to Millbury House to, to see his wife. On the way, he finds out that those not Morlocks have been set free by, by Jean and Rebecca, and he gets to the house just too late. There's been, there's been some developments off panel. Rebecca has gone into premature labor. Their child is already dead, and Rebecca herself is is quickly dying. She's not going to last much longer. No green bananas in their house. She has no sweet final words for her husband. She flat out blames him for the death of their child. She thinks that all the stress he's put on her has caused this. She cannot forgive him for what he's become, says she's become twisted and cruel, and in her very finalist of final words, she calls him sinister. Oh. So in a way, this right here is the true origin of Mr. Sinister, right? Yep. Everything else follows from this domino falling, but he is Mr. Sinister now. He doesn't have the white skin and the diamond yet, and not the cape, no capes yet, but this is why he becomes who he becomes. It's a great tragedy. You know, this moment he comes back and he actually tries to get back on the path of redemption, right? Like even, first of all, he thinks he can save his wife, you know, even though she's going to die. But, you know, he's like, then he's sort of like, please forgive me, right? Like, everything I've done was wrong. <laughs> and then she's just like, I can't forgive you. <laughs> Which, I, I I mean, it's written in a much better way than than I'm conveying it. But it's That's real, what it a real down gut to. punch. Yeah. Which is wild, right? Like, everybody wants to be forgiven, right? <laughs> you think you're going to have this this deathbed scene of reunion and compassion. But nope, she's, he's, he's done too much. She can't, she can't do it. 
Ah, so at this point, we see Essex just trash his house, break everything. He runs out into the family cemetery. Looks like he's about to end it all by blowing his own stupid brains out. But, of course, he doesn't, because, you know, we know, he, he sticks around. Instead, he pays a quick visit to his buddy Charles Darwin to make kind of a speech, and then he heads back off to rejoin Apocalypse. Clearly, his last tie with humanity is broken. It's severed. His is only one path ahead of him, and that's that's to take Apocalypse up on his off. So while all this has been going on, Scott has woken up, has had his one-on-one battle with Apocalypse. Scott does his best, but it, it's Apocalypse. What is he going to do? So Apocalypse wins and traps Scott within this mass of techno-organic machinery that even gives him a ruby quartz face shield, which is convenient. Apocalypse leaves, but has instructed the machinery just to basically torture and break Scott's spirit to make him a servant of Apocalypse. Now, Jean swoops in to try to rescue Scott, but it's like trying to get somebody out of a glue trap, and she just only ends up, you know, stuck in there with him. Oh, well. Now, Apocalypse has gone back to the Hellfire Club. They don't like being under Apocalypse's thumb, but it's not like they have much choice. Uh, the one who I think is an ancestor of Sebastian Shaw shows a little bit of a backbone, at least until Apocalypse actually shows up. and It's like, oh, oh, he's right behind me right now, isn't he? And Apocalypse is all about survival of the fittest. And this is where they really, he really lays out his plan with the war and the pestilence and all that stuff. He says, okay, Hellfire Club, your job is the war. There's going to be a signal. You'll know it when you see it. So I guess that's what the Hellfire Club is just making ready for, which they, they're kind of okay with having a strong leader. They don't like, you know, the serfs in Russia are getting kind of uppity and this ugly dude named Abraham Lincoln over in America is starting to to create some problems there. And, you know, he thinks, they think, well, maybe, maybe a strong leader is, is just what we need as long as we're kind and near the top of the higher. Not good dudes. So Apocalypse goes back to find both of these X-Men flies trapped in this techno-organic web. Essex arrives too and tells Apocalypse, hey, I'm going to say yes. I'm going to take up, take you up on your offer. So Apocalypse seals Essex off into this horrific chamber. It kind of reminds me of that, that chamber where Darth Vader has to go or the, to talk to the Emperor, right? This It's technology, but it's also clearly dark. And yeah, I'm going to say sinister. There's no other word for it. That's what it is. It's just clearly, you know, not right. Bad stuff going on. And we see inside this chamber, Essex turned into the Mr. Sinister that we know and love, or at, at least the version of Sinister that'll carry out the Mutant Massacre before he gets kind of the Kieran Gillen changes and the Hickman changes. And indeed, this is when Essex reflects on the last word his wife, Rebecca, ever spoke to him and declares that from this day forth, his name is Sinister. Great scene. Really good. I mean, again, Scott and Jean are only there just to be witnesses, but that's our job too. And it, it looks it looks ugly, but it looks beautiful at the same time. Yeah, and he gets his uh, diamond brand on his forehead, which at least at this point is a mark of Apocalypse. I'm not quite sure why the diamond is a mark of Apocalypse, and it's going to be hard to make this fit with the whole four suits that we see show up in that Immortal X-Men book we just read, and that I'm sure we'll see in Sins of Sinister, but at least here, it's just something Apocalypse puts on it, and it does look really cool, which and it's excuses It's also an actual diamond, which is interesting. It's kind of got some curvature to it, so it's a little. it looks a little different to me. But yeah, almost like the uh, the symbol on the Steeler's helmet. I think it's like called a hypocycloid or something. It's kind of in between a real diamond and that symbol. A little more stylized. I could, I, and this is me trying to rationalize. I'm just going to say, you know, that was the Mark of Apocalypse, but the warped mind of Nathan's like, oh, it kind of looks like a playing card. <laughs> so he's the one that came up with the other, the other card suit. That works for me. Yes. I buy that explanation. So at the very end of this issue, one more quick scene. 
Well, we have Oscar and those not Morlocks swoop in to rescue Jean and Scott because, again, they can't die. They have to do their thing. They have to observe some more things happen. But at this point, Apocalypse has already left. He's headed off to Buckingham Palace. And I guess this is going to be the big signal to the uh, the Hellfire Club, right? What is, what is uh, Apocalypse going to do here? Yeah, I guess he's just going to take over. It, it, it's almost uh, it's a naked gun, must kill the queen situation, except he's you know fully in control of himself. He's going to kill Queen Victoria kill her husband, Prince Albert, and I guess, you know, England first and then the world. I mean, England kind of runs most of the world at this point. And this is going to be the signal to kick off his Age of Apocalypse. Things not looking good for the world at this point. Moving right ahead into issue number four, titled The Beginnings. Hey, get it? It's the last issue called The Beginnings. Ooh, must be deep. Now, this opens with a fantastic portrait of Mr. Sinister emerging from that techno-organic cocoon. If I could have just like one image from this series blown up and made it a poster, it'd be this one. It just looks so amazing. He's this shadowy, twisted figure, a dark silhouette against a bright background. We see his limbs are still covered by these obscure, arcane bits of technology. And the only real color on him are these bits of red, these two evil eyes, and the diamond shapes on his head and his chest. Really. Really top-notch work here. It looks so great. Now, Scott wants to just kill Sinister then and there, right? It's, you know, it's the would-you-kill-baby-Hitler situation, almost. He knows all the evil that Sinister's going to do in the future, and, and hey, maybe I can stop that now. I mean, Mutant Massacre, the stuff he does with the orphans, all this bad stuff. Just cut it off. But Gene, and again, some kind of overwrought early 80s, 90s-ish dialogue, convinces him, hey, you can't kill a guy for acts he hasn't already committed yet. A very minority report. I rolled my eyes. I was like, <laughs> come on. I, I always laugh because like the Hitler, um, the baby Hitler drama, like I would have no problem <laughs> resolving that. <laughs> it seems very clear cut to me. This show is anti-Nazi, but yeah, it, it, it is fine. I mean, we know they can't kill Mr. Sinister here because he goes and does other stuff we already know happens. So that's the real reason they can't do it. But sure, they, they make up the in-book in reason why they can't, but that's fine. Now, again, these actions make Mr. Sinister kind of intrigue with this man named Scott Summers, right? You know, he's, he's powerful, but he's also not actually using his power to the utmost to make himself in control, to make himself win. And it kind of hints that this could be the start of Sinister's obsession with the Summers family. Again, light touch, but it, it's there, which, you know, it's... Summers is obsessed with Sinister, and Sinister obsessed with Summers, and there's this time loop going on. Very confusing, very comic book, very X-Men. And it ends with, again, a brief fight with Gene and Scott. They have to fly off. They can't take time here. They got to go and stop Apocalypse, because they know he's they're going to go kill the Queen. And once you've killed the Queen, it's like the, the chess game's kind of o- almost over. The King can barely move. Uh, Sinister takes a moment to look at a photo of his, his dead wife, and and what happens when Mr. Sinister, because he is no more Nathaniel Essex, he is Mr. Sinister now, what happens when he looks at this picture of wife Rebecca? <laughs> he says she's a handsome woman. <laughs> but basically, he realizes he has no feelings for her anymore. The transformation is complete, and um, yeah, he's not- No human feelings left anymore. at all. No, no love for her, no pain because she's gone, which I guess is a bonus for him. That's kind of why he made this choice. It, it set him free from that pain. So he sets off to to do what Apocalypse says, to create that pestilence. Now, next, in a really fun scene, we see Apocalypse is busting into Buckingham Palace. It's it's great. I mean, wouldn't you love to see that in a movie? Just Victorian England, giant Egyptian, nasty Apocalypse guy just busting into a 
Queen Victoria's uh, rooms. Good stuff. So he reveals his true blue Egyptian mutant self, freaks out Albert so much that he, he can't even speak English anymore, which again, Albert was a native German. So he says something like, I don't speak German. I'm going to try it. Was kann ich tun? Er ist unmenschlich, which uh, Google Translate tells me says, what can I do? He is inhuman. Now, nice guess, Albert, you know, almost. He's not quite inhuman. That's a whole other book, but uh, not a bad guess. Uh, Scott and Jean arrive at this point to fight Apocalypse and preserve the timeline. Now, even the two of them can't come close to beating Apocalypse until, out of seemingly nowhere, Apocalypse starts to weaken. Now, why would this happen? Why would the strongest mutant ever, maybe the first mutant, depending on which book you've read most recently, why would Apocalypse just start to kind of kind of get weak? Yeah, so Sinister did make the virus that Apocalypse wanted, but he coded it to only affect Apocalypse. <laughs> Slight tweak there. Again, (laughs) it's very interesting because we get to question why is Sinister doing this? I mean, this is the climax. This is what the whole plot turns on, right? Without this, Apocalypse would take over the world. It's not Gene and Scott saving the world. It's Mr. Sinister saving the world. So why does he do that? We could say, well, he doesn't want to work for Apocalypse. He doesn't want to be a servant. He wants to do a science thing. He wants the upside. He doesn't want the downside. So he's going to tell us he's going to stick it to uh, Apocalypse, you know, turn the tables on him. He can't kill him, of course, but it's going to weaken him enough to return him to his underground chamber, another long nap, leaving Sinister free to do whatever he wants. Ah, that's another way of looking at it. Or if you wanted to look at it a little more positively, you could say that, hey, maybe, maybe Sinister has a tiny scrap of humanity left, that he sees what Apocalypse is going to do, and he he can't quite go that far. Sure, he can do lots of horrible things. He will do lots of horrible things, but a plague to just kill off most of the world, one step too far. Lingering shred of humanity, maybe, or it could be completely selfish. You could read it either way, which I think is the best kind of of sinister. No, it's a a great way to play it, right? Because you never know. Is he like, is he just telling himself he doesn't have emotion or is it really gone, right? Right. How much of what he's saying, how much is he an unreliable narrator in the real world? Right? Can we trust why what he says about what he does? Now, you could say that Gene and Scott did do this because maybe it was their actions, their conversations, what they have demonstrated to Mister Sinister about what how they live their life. Maybe that's what turned him that little bit to make him not fully go along with Apocalypse. So you could say that Gene and Scott did do what the Ascani Sisterhood wanted of them, or you could say, hey, they're really just here to be observers so we can see where Mister Sinister comes from. Now, they can feel they're about to be whisked back to their own time, but before that happens, Gene does a bit of you know, mental hoodoo, does the Charles Xavier thing, and makes everyone at Buckingham Palace just forget all the weird shit that just happened. They don't know about any big blue Egyptian guy. They're just confused about, where did all this broken furniture come from? And oh, weren't our guards alive a few minutes ago? I don't know why they're dead, but you know, sweep them off to the side. And, and that's where our story kind of ends, except for two brief epilogues. And, and these are fun too. We see Oscar, who's, remember, he's, he's the good marauder. And we see Daniel, the formerly mute, not quite Morlock. And they've, they've just decided to leave. They need to put some distance between them and their old life. And they immigrate to New York City. And when they arrive, they, they want a fresh start. Fresh start. So they give their names as Oscar and Daniel. Oh, I, again, I have a hole in my notes here. What, what do they call themselves? <laughs> Summers. <laughs> Oscar and Daniel Summers. Interesting. Now, I, I did some digging, and Daniel does make one other 
brief appearance, or at least brief mention in comics, in a January 2000 Gambit book by Fabian Nisaiza, so a couple years after this book came out, which does confirm that Daniel Summers is the great-great-grandfather of Scott Summers. So I don't know that this gets mentioned a lot, but at least technically, in continuity, by saving Daniel, they set the stage for Scott Summers to be born. And, of course, Alex and Gabriel, and maybe Adam, but let's not even talk about him. So very interesting. Again, you don't need to know that to enjoy the book, but there's all these little connections that that tie it in with continuity in some cool ways. So in our final epilogue, we see Mr. Sinister, years, even decades later now, dropping in at Charles Darwin's funeral, and he declares himself now the only remaining true inheritor of that Darwinist future. And he just to, you know, to make it pretty clear who he is, he looks at Rebecca's photo one last time and drops it in the mud. He has rejected any links with humanity. At least that's what he wants to think about himself. We can still say that maybe, maybe deep, deep in his twisted little heart, maybe there's some left. Can't quite say. I mean, he went to the funeral. That's the thing that's weird to me. Like, you really don't care. Like, why do you show up? And, it, you know, he's got the picture box, right, that he discards. And it's it's cracked, right? You see it's cracked. I wonder, is that cracked because it hit the ground and cracked? Or was he, you know, angry and damaged it and then threw it away? A little you can certainly read it any way you want. Again, leaving that that openness, it tells us enough to enjoy the story, but but lets the reader kind of speculate on exactly what the motivations and emotions are, which is which is nice. So that's where this series ended. And overall, I thought again, it was terrific. You do have to get used to the dialogue, which is a bit purple, a bit overwrought by modern standards, but works for the settings. Now, when I knew this was a 90s book, I was kind of not looking forward to the art because I know there's big fans of the 90s style. It's not my thing, but this is very much not the stereotypical kind of overly edgy 90s art that I don't like. So I've already praised John Paul Leon a lot, and I still mean it. He was a fantastic artist, died way too young, left us some great things to look at. So I've only read a couple things he's drawn now, but if I ever see his name connected to anything else, I want to go back and, and, and read some more of his stuff. Just a, a great guy. Yeah. And if I was wealthy, for sure, I'd grab, I'd somehow find some of this art and add it to my collection of comic art <laughs> in my mansion. Yeah. I get, I, I, I've seen things before, but this is like when I really cement in my head, okay, here's an artist. Here's what his style is. Here's why it's great. And now, now I know who he is and why I should care. So this, that, even just for that, it was very much worth it to me to do do this reading. Uh, the rest of the book, you know, so Gene and Scott don't really do that much, but you know they're a, a means for us to see this Mister Sinister story, and that that story carries the series. This the the story of his character, how he became who he is, and we see he's already a, a very complex man with complex motives. And now, if I go to reread those Dawn of X stories again. And I see Sinister and Apocalypse both being part of the Quiet Council. Those scenes are going to read very differently to me now. I had no idea of this kind of shared history of creation and backstabbing and just this complex relationship they had, which yeah, and I'm, that I want to go back and see how much that's used in the book or, and how much just kind of lingers in the background. Yeah, between the 90s and you know the late, I guess, I don't remember when Hawksbox was, but like 2015 or so, there was a lot of conflict. Those two were always you know, the two fighting each other. And I think Sinister, if I recall, Sinister has some connection with Cable as well. Like he may have been the one that, that infected him with the techno-organic virus in an attempt to like get him. I, I just figure anything that goes wrong with the Summers family, it was Mr. Sinister. That's just how it is. 
yes. So yeah, they have a, they have a cool connection with each other, and I enjoyed seeing some of the like other organizations like Hellfire, right, make them more like the Masons, which kind of adds some depth to that organization as well. You know that they were a secret society even back then, and kind of makes sense why even in the modern version they kind of dressed like they're in Victorian England. Yep, right. They just that's just how they've always done it, and that's how they do it. So that's kind of neat. And so, then the, yeah. you know the Braddock's tie to the Hellfire, which I thought was cool, and then the you know, here's the first Summers, who's kind of a Morlock. Very cool as well. I mean, just just a lot. It's great when you can do like a flashback origin story and then actually enhance the story. Because I don't think these details existed before this. And they're great details. And like you said, like it changes how I look at the new current stories and the relationships of some of these characters. Well, Peter Milligan is a terrific comic book writer. He's, he's still currently working. He has a book now going, I think it's The Dogs of London, something like that, that has... It's uh like in a set in a 1960s to 1990s kind of setting with some some gangsters, some British gangsters who get some weird zombie kind of powers. It's it's, it's pretty good too, so you should check that out. So yeah, that's that's all I have to say about this book. Except hey, everybody who hasn't read this should, should go read it. Marvel Unlimited: uh, Further Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix. And it's, it's always hard to give a score to a book that's been out for almost 30 years at this point, but I'm going to, I'm just going to go ahead and call nine out of 10. It's been more fun for me to read than, than most stuff I've read this year. Talking about it, it got me more excited. So yeah, for sure. It's a nine. And honestly, this was a perfect story to get excited about Sins of Sinister. I'm way more excited about Sins of Sinister now, having read this. Sounds good. And speaking of Sins of Sinister, let's talk about next week. So we have three big books coming out next week, or at least three books that we care about. Uh, we have Immortal X-Men number nine, which looks to be a Sinister-centric issue. Now we've gotten hints that Something's going to go real wrong for the Quiet Council next week. So something's going to hit the fan, and it's going to be connected to Mr. Sinister. Maybe it'll give us a real view of where that event is going. Maybe we'll get to learn more about his kind of pet mutants that he kills off to reset the timeline. That'd be nice. Uh, or maybe we'll just spend some more time with our, our modern, you know, sassy Sinister, which even just, just 22 pages of hanging out with him would be a good time. After that, we have... X-Men Red number nine, which we're going to check in and see what's happening in our Cable versus Abigail Brand situation. So that'll be nice. And one more book, we have X-Force number 35, where we'll see Sever Blackmore and Solemn making just a mess out of Beast Black Site prison colony. So I don't know if they'll all be winners, but they all have things that make me want to read them as soon as they come out. Yeah, Sound good I'm to you, Ruben? It. Yep, it's great. And um, yeah. These are the books I do want to read. <laughs> if you're a Boom Boom fan, I'm sorry, we're not going to cover that other book. I'm not even going to give it. But, but her, her bosoms make things explode. I, the only thing I'll say about that is there are people that love it, that think that's the greatest Absolutely. book that's mm-hmm. out right now. I'm glad they have a book. And, you know, we have the liberty of um, not just basically reading books to hate read them. I'm not, uh, I'm not Jim, so... Oh, oh. <laughs> shade thrown. I don't have, I mean, I get his perspective, right? You're, it, there's, you know, I guess, I don't know, the the truth of reading the books and then assessing them whether you like them or not. But um, I, yeah, I don't have fun reading books that I know I don't like. We're, we're not here to read everything, but fortunately, there's, you know, for good or ill, there's a lot of X-Men books going on these days. So we can pick out the ones that we like and the ones that seem to be moving the main story forward. And we'll still have plenty to talk about. So that's what we'll do next week. So until we then, get everybody- to read that other book, though. <laughs> now that I'm thinking about this, that might be fun. 
get on Slack and tell him he really needs to read it. I, I'm going to go, go out and say 10 new Patreons, 10 new patrons on Patreon, and we'll make Jim read and review Exterminators, and he'll do it. Little audio editor's note, Jim here to tell you it would take probably 500 new Patreons to get me to read that book, plus I heard that shade, Robin. So thank you, everybody, for coming along on this flashback, unusual episode of The Weird Dose of X. We'll be back to normal next week with the current books. And until then, please follow us on the Twitters at WS Marvel Comics. Visit our website, weirdsciencemarvelcomics.com, where you'll see written reviews of a lot of these books, including Exterminators, mostly written by uh, our man Gabe. And he'll have different opinions than we have, which is all to the good. And until then, you all keep reading X-Men comics, and we will see you next time. Adios.